Our text this morning is Luke chapter 21, verses 34 through 36. Luke 21, 34 through 36. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. Uh, Father, enlighten our eyes to this text, give wisdom to our hearts, bring a earnest desire, conviction in our hearts. Uh, Father, as we hear your word here, that it would change us, that we wouldn't be a, the same as we consider it, that we would grow in Christ's likeness. And Father, I pray that you might uh, bring about that ray of light for the first time in, in unbelievers' life this morning. As someone considers the reality of facing Jesus and asking the question whether or not they will stand, Father, I pray that you would give them wisdom and that you would show them the glory of Christ in their great need. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon said, Be faithful every day that you may be faithful to the end. Let not your life be like a tangled mass of yarn, but keep it in ever due order on the spindle so that whenever the final knife shall cut the thread, it may end just where an enlightened judgment would have wished. Spurgeon gave the illustration of your life is like yarn. And that at a point in time, the knife will come to the yarn and you'll either have a spindle that is wound neatly and ready as though it were ready to sell. How you would put it on the shelf in a store. He says, let your life be like that spindle. You're ready. The, the moment that knife cuts and that spindle is done, let it not be a tangled mess. Everyone who's ever worked a job and loved their boss, so that might not be all of you, but if you've had the privilege to work for a boss that you loved. I see Dolores smirking at Don over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh. If you've ever worked for a boss that you loved, 
you desire to be found faithful, a good employee, one who is doing what is expected of you, one who honors the boss by working in such a way that when the boss doesn't see, you are doing what he would expect. Every believer wants to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now we all know we're sinners. None of us is sinless. In fact, before glory, you might never do an act that doesn't, isn't laced with some pride, some selfishness, even our best acts in the Spirit are still done in some degree. This sin is still connected to us. So we're not talking about perfection. God knows we won't be perfect. That's why there's Christ that we can confess our sin to. But you can be found faithful. After being born again, you were given this spirit. You're given the word of God. You're given the body of Christ. You're given these things by Christ as stewards that will be called to an account at the end. And some believers will do well with those things and other believers will not do as well. In fact, when Christ returns, some believers will experience loss on that day. You say, how so? In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul deals with this issue. He talks about how some plant and some water, but God gives the growth. And the problem in the church at Corinth is there's pride. Who's better, the water or the planter? Who's better, Paul or Apollos or Peter? And in verse 8, he says this, he who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. So this isn't talking about Christ's work on your behalf that he did for you in your justification. God will only accept a sinner into heaven because of Christ's work. Paul's talking about a born-again believer, infants in Christ, who've been given the Spirit and the Word and the church who are laborers who will be rewarded to one degree or another based on what they've been given. And then he says in verse 9, he says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And then in verse 12 he says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest 
for the day will disclose it because it'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So here's what he said. The foundation is Christ. It's like a building. The foundation laid is Christ and workers are building on top of that foundation. Some build with good materials that'll survive fire. Some build with wood, hay, and straw, which will not survive the fire. And there will be a day, it'll be tested. And then he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now you may have a boss that will forgive you if he comes at an hour you do not expect and finds you messing around. He walks through that door and catches you all of the sudden. He may forgive you and you may keep your job. But is not that moment this boss with whom you love one of the worst moments of your life to where you would say that moment was loss. I didn't like it. It wasn't good. That's not what I desire. When Jesus returns, it'll be a type of litmus test on our lives. Everything will come into focus in a moment. Except a litmus test is not quite the right word. For a litmus test reveals a truth that then lets a person respond in the right way. For example, Al Mohler, when he became president at uh, Southern Seminary, inherited many professors that said they respected the authority of Scripture as authoritative and sufficient, but who in practice and in teaching did not. And the litmus test he held the professors to was the issue on women preachers in the church. He said, the texts are clear. And a, a majority of the professors are for women preachers. That was the movement that was happening. And the litmus test he held their feet to, what do I have here? Someone who's willing to go with what the text says or 
not was that issue. But you see, with the litmus test, he had an idea about who he could trust and who he couldn't, and he could make a decision. But Christ's return is not a litmus test in the sense that you have a chance to respond. And that's why when you look at the end of verse 34 of Luke 21, he says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life that the day may come upon you suddenly like a trap or a snare. Now, when you get caught in a snare, the only thing left is the short amount of time before you bleed out or before you die. When the trap comes down on the mouse, he doesn't have a whole lot of more decisions to make. And this is what Jesus is talking about. And he's talking to believers. And he's talking to them about two different experiences. When that day comes, that will be felt by two different believers. And this is a simple sermon. If you look at your notes, live holy lives ready for the return of Christ. Watch yourselves, watch Christ. And finally, continue watching. I think that's what we see here. Previous to this text is the description of the return of Christ. And then this is the application. This is why studying Christ coming in all of his glory is practical. The day will happen. We're going to see in the text that everyone will see this day. The birth of Christ, a few people saw. The first time he came and took on flesh. Everyone will be there on this day. And then, Scott's preaching next week. The following week, as we enter into the very last two verses of 21 and get into 22, we see the culmination of the Gospel of Luke. And really the culmination of the, all the scripture. And that is the cross of Christ. All this time in Luke. In a sense is. The introduction to the main event. Which begins in the next text. As we see why Christ came. As we see why all the sacrifices. As we see how someone like Adam and Eve can be covered. All that is going to come to a climax as we enter in to chapter 22 and we get to see the main event. But before we get there, let's squeeze every last drop out of Christ's 
prediction and promise of his second coming practically. This is an application text. So let's look at verse 34 of Luke 21. But watch yourselves. Have you ever thought about that? You know you're supposed to look for Christ. The command here is to watch yourselves. Lest your hearts. You've heard me say this a thousand times. But when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the soul of a person. The place where your thoughts come from. Your emotions are in your heart. So what you think about affects your emotions and desires and your desires affect what you do. And Jesus just said, watch your hearts. Watch your thoughts and your emotions and your desires because your whole life flows out of this heart. Proverbs 4.23. Watch your hearts. Watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down. Burdened. Literally, the word means piled upon. Watch yourselves so that when Christ returns... You're not on the ground with a heap and pile on top of you of sin. Unconfessed, unrepented of sin that's been treated lightly. Watch yourselves that you not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Now, we don't use the word dissipation much. It has, it's connected to drunkenness. It's this idea, one way you could say it in modern terms, it's the party lifestyle. The carousing lifestyle. Watch yourselves that your hearts not be weighed down with this careless carousing. The word has nauseating. Uh, uh, it's speaking about the nausea that comes from indulging yourself in overeating or drinking too much. Watch yourselves that when Christ returns... You're not found in weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Now, drunkenness is talked about often in the scriptures. Many great men who God have used have fallen to this sin. You think of Noah, who remained faithful to God, building the ark all those years a preacher of righteousness. And if finally, finally, 
after all that struggle, can we not have a moment of carousal, of party? Isn't there a time for dissipation, forgetting the cares of this world with alcohol? There isn't. First Corinthians 5.11 says this. But now, Paul says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I think he's pointing to the Lord's Supper there. Someone who bears the name of brother and yet doesn't care about their sexual sin, doesn't care about the drunken lifestyle, the carousing lifestyle. How serious does God take this sin? You all know the Bible doesn't command you can drink alcohol. Jesus drank alcohol. Everywhere the Bible condemns drunkenness. What is drunkenness? Why is it bad? Is there not a moment when a person drinks where they become carousing? You've seen it. They seem to come under the influence of uh, silliness, of a type of lightheartedness that doesn't take serious responsibilities. You've seen wives go, oh, great. That's one too many. Now I got to deal with this. Or you've seen kids say, man, I hope dad doesn't embarrass me. There's the point where we're not ready anymore because too much has been consumed. You can't take serious your responsibilities as a husband or as a father or as a neighbor. There comes a point where your mouth that's to be used for building up and being filled with grace starts to talk like the world. And so we see often in Scripture, Romans 13, 13 says, let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Because... The day's going to come. There's, the day is coming, so walk in the daytime. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. One's going to have an influence. Don't be under the influence of alcohol. Be under the influence of the Holy Spirit so that Christ's Word can dwell richly in you and you'll use your mouth in songs of praise. That's, that's the idea. 
Christ will come. Will you be weighed down? What influence will be upon you when that day comes suddenly? The most ardent believer does not know when Christ is coming. It's going to be surprising as fast as a mousetrap claps together. It'll happen in a twinkling of an eye like lightning flashes. And before you hear the thunder, Christ will return. The thief doesn't leave a note on your door and say, I'm going to be here at 2 a.m. But Jesus says, I'm coming back and watch yourselves. You're not going to know when. You're not going to know the day or hour. Christ in his flesh on this earth said the Father knows, but I don't know the day or hour. So you're not going to be able to be ready in that you know when he's going to come. But you should watch yourselves. You should live your life in light of, I love him. He died for me. He's given me so much. The spirit of God dwells inside you, believer. What a gift. Not only that, Particular spiritual gifts have been given to everyone in the body to be used for the building up of the body of Christ, which is the bride of Christ. We want to be ready, don't we? We want to be found faithful. We know it can happen any moment, we don't know the day or hour but we can be looking and watching ourselves so that that day we stand. Now, I know there's two senses to this. In salvation, there's justification, which is your legal standing before God. As a sinner, you're guilty, right? But Christ lived the life you could never live, the perfect life, built up a gift of righteousness so that anyone who trusts in him says, I'm a sinner. I have no standing before God in my sin. Christ is my only hope. That person is justified the moment they believe in faith because their sin has been paid for by Christ and Jesus' perfect righteousness has been put in their account. And so you will stand in the end in Christ in that sense. But in salvation, there's justification, but then there's sanctification, which is the process, once you become born again, of gradually growing to become more and more like Christ. And I think this text, even in this sense, is saying one person is going to receive loss, in a sense, crumble to the ground because they're drunk. They're in the middle of looking at pornography. And 
Christ shows up. And it's not that Christ can't forgive them, but it'll be a shameful moment that will be covered by the blood of Christ for the believer. You got to know Christians will be sinning when Christ returns, right? It's not like all the Christians all of a sudden live a perfect moment, I don't think. And then as he grabs a couple sample sins, dissipation and drunkenness, which represents these fleshly desire type sins. And then look at what he says. And the cares of this life. Watch yourself so your hearts aren't weighed down with alcohol and drunkenness and the cares of this life. Well, those can be good things. That can be your job. That can be children. That can be ministry. Right? These aren't these ugly sins that everyone knows are wrong. This is the everyday cares of this life. There's a way a person can live where anxiety rules. Earthly mindedness rules is, is in the primary place. Therefore, when earthly things go wrong, their life starts to go out of control. And just like the person who is drunk would be the person that is always anxious about the cares of this world. Their eyes are down here on what's going on. What does so-and-so think of me? I wonder how this is going to work out. It's really practical, isn't it? If we're honest, we struggle with these things often. In Matthew 13, 22, Jesus, in the parable of the soils, you remember what he said about the third soil? The, the word of God sown uh, among the thorns. Here's what he said. As for the one sown among the thorns is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So there we see someone who ends up proving to be an unbeliever without fruit. And the evidence is, is the cares of this world just ultimately captivated their life. And then 2 Timothy 4.10 Paul says it this way, speaks of Demas, someone who was formerly a fellow minister of the gospel. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was in love with this present world. And then you remember back in Luke 12 and verse 13, Someone in the crowd says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made you? Or, 
Who made me a judge or arbiter between, over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the question to ask yourself is, am I weighed down with the cares of this world in such a way that my relationship to Christ is not sweet? Anxiety rather than the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, seems to be characterizing my life now. That's a question. Watch yourselves. You're not supposed to just hear the sermon and say, ah, oh, that, that was kind of convicting, pastor. No, Jesus is saying, watch yourselves. Ask the question. Think about it. Think about what your thoughts are. Your emotions expose where your hope is. If anxiety and fear is ruling, you know there's wayward thoughts away from Christ. All Christians have anxiety. That's why Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about those things. He knows you're going to have them, but what do you do with them? You bring them to Christ. What would this look like? What would a person that's ready might look like? You know, I remember when I was in college and I started dating Laura. She went to Northwestern in Minneapolis and I was in Sioux Falls and I skipped more classes during that period than I should have. <laughs> I missed her. Is that justification? Probably not. But it was Valentine's Day and... We weren't supposed to be together, but I was surprising her, and I made a phone call to her, and I was talking to her saying, happy Valentine's Day, and pray all sorts of mushy stuff. And her roommates let me into her apartment, and I walked into her bedroom while I'm talking to her. That's how it ought to be when Christ returns. You're in fellowship with Christ. You're talking to him. You're close to him. He is your life. Your prayer life is continuous. It's deep fellowship with the word of Christ dwelling in you so that Christ is there with you. You're talking to him. You're looking through a glass dimly, but as you're talking to him one day, He's just going to be there. And you're going to say, yes, yes. I was waiting for you. You said you were coming. I was ready. I wasn't perfect, but your grace covers that. But continued fellowship for all eternity. That's the picture. That's the goal. Isn't that what every... Christian heart longs for, and yet we're prone to wander and leave the God that we love. 
as the cares of this world start to build it. You don't try to do it a lot of times. You just, you just have responsibilities. My boss wants this. You know, I'm a, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I have these responsibilities. And all of a sudden, I'm far from Christ. And I didn't maybe dive into some terrible, terrible thing, but the cares of this world started to weigh me down. And we feel that. But hear this congregation. What better weapon do you have than looking at the cross of Jesus Christ, seeing his love for you? He died for you. That Was that first song we sang not incredible? How his wounds say forgive him? Forgive him? So I got the cross here. And then at the cross... He not only gives me justification, but he begins sanctification. He gives me a new birth. He gives me the Holy Spirit. And he's coming again. And we'll give an account to him with those things. Are those not what we need to see? Is that not the perspective that we ought to have in this world. And then he says in verse 35, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. Second coming, everyone sees it. Everyone who's died already, that's a believer, comes with him. Everyone who's left on earth will see it. You're not going to miss it. Are you going to be found in Christ? And if you're found in Christ, are you going to be found watchful and ready? That's what Jesus is encouraging us with. He doesn't tell us when, but he does tell us he's coming and he does tell us the disposition we ought to have. And so he says in verse 36, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Well, there's the debate. What are these things? Well, I do think we ought to stay awake and be praying that things like the cares of this world and and dissipation and drunkenness don't take over our lives and that we're ready to stand before Him But previous in this chapter, what is he described but Christ coming in judgment, the day of the Lord, has been what's been being described. And in my understanding of the end times, the end comes in stages that get progressively worse in the tribulation. And so when he says, praying that you may have the strength to escape these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man, I think a text like 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that we are to wait for the Son of Man from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Our, our 1 Thessalonians 5.7, for those 
who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, or, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but uh, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So at the end of chapter 4, I think Paul reveals the rapture. And then he begins chapter 5 and he says, you all know about the day of the Lord. You don't have anyone to tell you about that, but encourage one another because you're not destined for wrath. Revelation 3.10, but because you kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And so we're to endure in our watching. And in that endurance, we're to stay awake. It's a, it's a readiness and we're to pray. What does prayer reveal? You either think you're going to endure in your own strength or in His. Prayer reveals your need, your humility to realize that it's not by your own wisdom, it's not by your own strength, but it's through Him that you, your life will be used for His Glory, And so the, this is the type of life God has called us to live. In 1 John 2.28, we have such a good illustration of how this is, is to work. And now little children abide in him. Abide in him. <laughs> Be talking to him. Have his word dwell in your hearts richly. Be found in him, all right? That's the idea. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. You're still struggling with sin, aren't you? Right? But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Justification? not guilty. Sanctification growing in righteousness. When Christ comes, glorification. You will be like him. All sin will be gone on that day because you will see him clearly and perfectly. So the more you grow in your knowledge of Christ, in your study of him and his love for you in the gospel, the more you'll be like him. 
And that's why he ends this text by saying, and everyone who thus hopes in him, looking for this appearing, purifies himself in the present as he is pure. You see, if your heart longing is, is I don't want to sin. I can't wait for the day Christ comes and I'll worship perfectly. No more selfishness. No more anxiety. I can't wait till oh, I quit struggling with this body of death. But he's coming one day. The person who does that purifies himself in the present. Because that's our goal. The more you know Christ in the present, the more you'll be like him. I had to read a book in seminary called, You Are What You Worship. If you're going to worship an idol, you'll become like that idol. If you worship Christ, you'll become more and more like Christ. And you see the difference between rules and worship? If you love him, if you worship him, you won't say, you know, Quit drinking. Stop doing this. This isn't what Christians do. If you love him, you can't taste it. It doesn't taste good anymore. It doesn't deliver. And so, what do we do? What ought we do? But repent. Confess our sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And I want to end with Jude 24, this doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and forever. Here's what you need to know. This is a big challenge Jesus gave. Every one of you is convicted, I'm sure. I don't know if anyone's here saying, I'm perfectly where I want to be for when Christ returns. But here's what you got to know. Jesus Christ is going to the cross after this. And why is he going there? Because you're not good enough to earn your place before his throne. But Jesus Christ is so powerful that he can take you and me with all of our failure and sin and cause us to stand before the presence of his great glory with joy. What a Savior we have. Father, thank you for this hope. Thank you for this challenge to reevaluate our life. Father, make this sermon a litmus test because there's opportunity to respond. Father, let us live the life of joy and pleasure. We know that in your presence there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Lord, may our relationship with you on this earth be close. May we be found abiding in Christ, his word dwelling in us richly, being filled with the spirit.
Father, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.